No, I have no intention of going until midnight. And this is one of those texts which certainly has jokes aplenty, doesn't it? And, and I know many of you are tired out there um, from the Blueberry Festival and all the hard work that went into that. Fortunately, there are no third floor seats out here. So if, any falls, if anyone of you falls out of a bench, there should be no serious injuries or no lasting injuries. I know that one pastor I heard... Um, there was a man in his congregation who had a habit of falling asleep, and so he assigned one of the ushers, gave him a stick, and whenever the guy would fall asleep, he would go over and whack him with a stick. And there was one Sunday where the man, he fell asleep, and he hit him with a stick, and he kind of jolted up. He fell asleep again. He hit him, started falling asleep again. He hit him even harder this time, hit him so hard, the guy fell out of his chair. He was laying down on the ground, and he kind of opened his eyes, and he said, hit me harder. I can still hear him. But so today's story is the story of St. Eutychus, the patron saint of all those who fall asleep in church. <laughs> and we read the story, and initially we think, this is a strange story. Is it just the point of the story is that simply don't sit in a window at church? Is the point of the story that sometimes pastors go too long in their sermons? Some of those two things may be true, but I'm not sure that that's the point that Luke was getting at with these stories. And so we're here in the midst of our series called Our Strange Bible, looking at these stories that occur in Scripture where you read them and you kind of stop and say, huh, what's going on here? And even ask the question, why is this story in here? What was the author getting at? What was Luke's intention for telling us this story? Like I said, we might draw lessons about it. We might draw lessons about youth and about the importance of not boring them and, and keeping them in the center instead of having them sit on the outside. But I'm not sure that this is what this story is about. So I want to introduce a story and then maybe draw some lessons on us for our own life. And so the, we're in the book of Acts. We're in chapter 20. And in the previous chapters, this is the beginning of the new church, the beginning of the church. God's Holy Spirit has come on the day of Pentecost. And the people of God are sharing the good news. And there's this persecution that breaks out the church begins to scatter and to, to send the good news of Jesus around the world. And one of the people that becomes a part of this missionary effort to spread the good news is a man named Paul, who had initially persecuted the church, and now Jesus has spoken to him, and he's put his full faith, his whole life into Jesus. And around chapter 13 of the book of Acts, he begins this whole series of journeys around the Mediterranean, primarily in what we know as modern-day Turkey and modern-day Greece preaching to churches and teaching them. And he makes a couple circuits there. And about the start of chapter 20, he's finishing up this circuit. And he's getting ready to head back to Jerusalem. And I want to pick up at verse, chapter 20, verse 2. It says, He traveled through the area, speaking many words of encouragement to the people, and finally arrived in Greece. And so there's a sense where that's what Paul is doing. He's speaking words of encouragement. And encouragement is one of those words, sometimes we think of, this is just a, like a pat on the shoulder. Good job, guys. And encouragement for Paul was much more than that. Encouragement was really very much a like keep up the good fight. Because these were people, if you think about this early church, these were people, it was a very small part of the population. They didn't run into many other followers of Christ. And when they followed Jesus, it often came with troubles. They might lose their job. They might 
have issues with their family. They might be persecuted, might be put in jail. And Paul even has this happen to him several times. So encouragement is very much about keep up the good fight. You can do this. And it's a word to persist. And so he's talking to them. And he ends up here in um, chapter 20, verse 5 and 6. And he says they leave Philippi and then they join others at Troas. And Troas is located kind of the western tip of modern-day Turkey. I always think of the country of Turkey looks like a, the head of an animal or like a dog or something, a dragon. And it, if you imagine the nose, that's about where Troas sits. And so Paul has come to the city of Troas, and he's speaking, and he's spending his last time with there. And so it says, on the first day of the week, we came together to break bread. And now if you're reading Luke, you hear this phrase, they came together to break bread. And if you've been paying attention to the story that Luke tells first in his gospel, then the book of Acts, that ought to set off some triggers. Say, oh, wait, I've heard about breaking bread before. Jesus, on his last night with his disciples, he took bread and he blessed, he broke it, gave it to his followers. There's a story at the end of Luke where he's walking down the road after his resurrection and two disciples are there and they don't recognize Jesus. And when do they recognize him? When he breaks bread with them. Book of Acts, chapter 2, right after the day of Pentecost and the church is growing, there's this description of the church growing in 242 to 47. And it says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. So breaking bread was a central part of being a Christian community. This was a central part. And it was more than just what we do on a Sunday we call the Lord's Supper. That was a part of it. They would gather and they would remember the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. They would celebrate that as they took bread and they wine and they shared it together. But they also shared a meal together. And that's one of the reasons we do these picnic in the pines on this first Sunday in conjunction with communion is because that was what they did. They would gather for fellowship together. And it was a sign and a symbol of God's kingdom. Because when you ate together, especially in the ancient world, that was a sign of solidarity with people. You only ate with people that you were friends with. I mean, most of us do that. I mean, we, we rarely just have invite strangers out into our house, right? I mean, we don't just walk out on the street and say, hey, want to come have dinner with me? Most people would think you're kind of strange. And you often also hang out with people just within your social circles. But the early church, they shattered all those social circles so you might go to the city of Troas, and there might have only been 30 or 40 people there, but there very well could have been slaves, former slaves, maybe still people who were still enslaved. There could have been rich people and poor people, men and women. There could have been Jew people who had been formerly Jews and those who were formerly Gentiles. Never before would you have seen them sitting at a table together, but here, in Troas, they break bread together. So there's this picture Luke is setting up. This is what the early church looked like. They're doing the pattern of the early church. They're gathering together and breaking bread. And it says, Paul spoke to the people. And it says, because he intended to leave them the next day, he kept on talking until midnight. In other words, maybe you've done this before. You, you go to visit family or maybe you see an old friend you haven't seen for a while. And you stay up late talking because you know you're not going to see them again for a while. Now, in, in our day and age, you leave somebody, wait, you can just pick up the phone and call them the next day, right? You can send them a text. You can send them an email. For Paul, when he left these people, 
The only way he might ever communicate with them again is if he never made it back was to send them a letter. And there was no Mediterranean Postal Service. There was literally, mail carry was find somebody who was going that way and say, here, take this letter and deliver it. And that person then had to find their way walking or, or riding or sailing on a ship to get that letter. So it might be several months before your letter gets to where it's going to. And so Paul is there this last night, and he loves these people dearly. And he has a message for them. And so he says, I'm going to spend every minute I have, and I'm going to share, and I'm going to talk with them, which is why he goes on and on till midnight. I'll see you guys later, so I'm not going to midnight, okay? But he said there were many lamps in the upstairs room. And so they had come ready, in a sense, this was an upper room of a house, probably not usually used a whole lot. They didn't use this room a lot, so the fact that there were all these lamps meant they came ready for the night. They came ready to be there for the night. And where were they? It says they were in an upstairs room. What if I said they were in an upper room? Again, think back on the story of Luke. If you're one of those folks, if you read your Bible regularly, you notice this. What sort of things happened in an upper room? Jesus, well, Pentecost, so the day when the Spirit came, the disciples were gathered in an upstairs room. When Jesus took the bread and broke it and had the first last supper with his disciples, where were they? In an upper room. Okay, going a little deeper, Acts chapter 9, there's a woman named Tabitha. She also dies. This is with the disciple Peter. And they take her where after she dies? To an upper room. And so Luke is saying, Hey, significant things happen in an upstairs room or in an upper room. This is a place where God is at work. And so this is all the clues that Luke is leaving us here to tell us this is more than just about pastors who talk too long. There's something going on. They're breaking bread together. They're in an upstairs room. They've come with their lamps prepared. This is the people of God gathering to worship together, to hear God's word, to speak together, to meet together. And then, it, then we meet our guy named Eutychus. And so in Greek, Eutychus means good fortune, or we might say a nickname we might, we might have in today's world called him lucky. But Eutychus wasn't so lucky, was he? But he's sitting there, and he's in, he's in there, and he's there, he's wanting to hear what's happening. And he was sinking into a deep sleep. Granted, it's midnight, we don't know what he's been doing all day long. The other thing is, it's possible there's all these lamps in the room. In the, in the ancient days, they didn't have electricity. So lamps were what? Oil lamps. How many of you have ever been around an oil lamp? What goes along with oil lamps? Smoke. So imagine now this upper room filled with a bunch of oil lamps burning. It's late at night. The fumes are coming up. Maybe he went by the window because he was getting the fumes were getting to him. And he starts to get a little bit sleepy. And I get it. I've been there before. And he starts to sleep. But sleep is one of those things. And so we're going to come back to this. So he gets a little sleepy, and he falls out of the third floor story window and dies. And Paul rushes down. And this is great. But Paul notices this, or Paul notices the commotion. He goes down. He throws his arms around him. And he says, don't be alarmed. He's alive. So there aren't a whole lot of stories like this in the Bible where somebody who dies is raised from, I mean, taking, setting aside Jesus, where another human being raises somebody back from the dead. There's Elijah and Elisha, 
And then the story of Peter that I just mentioned in Acts chapter 9. Then Paul, and then a couple times where um, Jesus does the same thing with uh, the servant's uh, daughter or, or with Jairus' daughter or the, um, so the, or the widow's son. And so there's these scenes where this person is brought back to life. And then it says, this is great though. You may not have noticed this. You're like, okay, wait. he went back upstairs and kept talking. I mean, you might think, oh, come on, Paul. You already killed one guy. <laughs> but he says he went back and he went back talking. And they broke bread and they ate. And after talking until daylight, he left. Okay, and then the people took the young man home alive and were greatly comforted. They were comforted by it. So what's going on with this story? I think a couple of things. One is we're paying attention, as like I said, some of those little clues that Luke has dropped along the way. That this is about the community of God and what it looks like. That they gather together, that they break bread together, that they're in this upper room, this place of eating, that they're come and they're prepared. And then we say, well, this guy fell asleep. And I think there's something more that Luke is getting at because sleep as Luke tells the stories, these other stories in his Bible, often means more than just sleeping. Sleeping can mean many different things. Sometimes sleep just means that. You know, you lay down at the end of a long day, you go to sleep. Sometimes in the ancient world, and even in the Bible, the word sleep can refer to someone who's dead. So they've gone to sleep. But sleep can also have this sense of not really being alert to what's going on. It can have a spiritual sense. So when Jesus goes to the garden at the, near the end of his life, this is after the Last Supper where they're in the upper room, they break bread together, they go out to a garden, and he gets ready to pray. He turns to his followers and he says, stay alert. And he comes back and what are they doing? They're sleeping. But there's this sense where when he's saying stay awake, he's not simply saying this isn't time for a nap. He's saying to them, you need to be alert to be paying attention to what's going on around you. The same thing happened earlier in Jesus when he, at the time when he was, went up on what they call the Mount of Transfiguration. He's transformed. There's Moses and Elijah. And he looks to his followers. He says, I need you to stay alert or to stay awake. And so sleep often has that sense. And even later on in the speech, which we didn't read, that he it goes after he leaves Troas, he goes to Ephesus, and he gives them a farewell. And in verse 28, chapter 20, verse 28, he says, keep watch over yourselves and over all the flock. And the sense of keep watch is watching over. But he's also talking about this sense of staying awake. That word keep watch is about staying awake. And so I think what's going on here with Eutychus is it's a story not simply about falling asleep physically, but falling asleep spiritually. That what's interesting is in the rest of the book of Acts, we don't see the disciples struggling with that. In fact, we see them often sleeping. So Paul and Silas are in jail late at night. And they're not sleeping. They're singing songs. When Peter's in jail and the angel comes to him in the middle of the night, he knows exactly what to do. So up until this point, we see the disciples and every time that there's a sense of nighttime, they're awake, they're ready. But here we see Eutychus, and he's not alert. And when he falls asleep, in, in a sense, when he 
isn't paying attention spiritually, what happens? He literally falls away from the community and loses his life. And so I think Luke is in part telling this story. It's set in the midst of right before it, Paul has said, or it's Luke has said that Paul is encouraging the people. Right after this, he's telling this story to these people to keep watch and to stay awake. And I think Luke inserts the story here as this symbol, as this sign, as this picture of what happens when we're not staying spiritually awake. When we get spiritually lax, in a sense, when we fall asleep. And what can happen when we fall asleep spiritually? We fall out the window. We fall away from the community that's gathered to break bread. We fall away from the people who are gathered around hearing God's word. And we die. So what can we do with that? I think a couple things that we might do with that is think about, what does it look like to become in a spiritual stupor? To become no longer alert? To become spiritually asleep? Or maybe the better suggestion would be, what do we do to keep that from happening? How do we see it? Because maybe you've experienced, I know experienced this sense of where sometimes you can go through your life if we think of our life, our life with God, and we just feel kind of like we're asleep in it. And what happens when you get sleepy or tired? You just don't notice things as much. You don't see things. And so one thing you might think about is just have a conversation with God. And this is one of the best ways to start almost anything. Talk to God about it. Say, God, how am I doing? You know, because the thing is, we can't figure it out for ourselves. When we try and analyze ourselves, when we try and self-diagnose, we do a terrible job. Especially when it comes to our spiritual life. Because we have a habit of falling into one of two extremes. One extreme is we just beat ourselves up about it. And there's some of you who are really good at that. Just like everything, oh man, I'm terrible. I, didn't, I only read 15 pages of my Bible yesterday. I only prayed for 47 minutes and I fell asleep at the end of that. And then there's those of us on the other end who we have a habit of deceiving ourselves. I'm, I'm doing really good. Oh, my life with God is great. If somebody comes up and asks you, How, how's it between you and Jesus? Oh, it is awesome. Praise the Lord. <laughs> and the reality is your soul is rotting away and you're falling asleep on the inside. That you're, you're out the window already and passing the second floor. Because there is no life with God right now. It's, it's just dry and dusty. And, and so what do we do to keep from falling spiritually asleep? One is, it's just a process of sometimes of examining ourselves. And so Ignatius of Loyola created a series of spiritual exercises um, and called the examiner, examen, if you're, you want to get fancy with it, E-X-A-M-E-N, the examine. And it was a way to look at your spiritual life. And so I would suggest two things you can do using Loyola's practice as the examine is it's a helpful thing to do in the evening. And whether it's once you're in bed or just before you get to bed, and think of two things. One is in terms of your conscience, 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 and thinking about how was my walk with God today? How did I love God and how did I love my neighbor today? And where were there some places that maybe I missed the mark? Some people will use the Ten Commandments. Maybe they'll use the Beatitudes. Maybe they'll use the Sermon on the Mount. But some way to think about 
what did it look like for me today in terms of loving God and loving my neighbor? So you're examining your conscience. And again, it isn't a journey to beat yourself up or to say how good you are. It's a journey where God goes along with you as you invite him to say, where am I falling short? Because as we fall into those things, that's what often leads to sleep. So we examine our conscience, but we also examine our conscious, our consciousness of God. And so that might be simply a practice of saying, where did I see God today? Because that's one of the great ways to stay awake to God is to just do that practice of stop at the end of the day and say, hey, where did I experience God today? It may have been watching a child play. It may have been being down at the beach and seeing the waves. It may have been reading your Bible. It may have been a conversation with a friend. It may have just been one of those things where God seems to just speak to you or give you a sense of peace in the middle of the night or in the middle of the day. But where were you conscious to God? Because what happens then as we do that, as we tally that, if we spend a regular habit of sitting at the end of the day and saying, where did I see God today? Do you know what begins to happen? You start to see God more and more and more. We know this from everyday life. And I've used, I think, this illustration a couple of times. When you buy, say, for example, you get a new car, whether it's a brand new car or a different car for yourself, have you ever noticed that all of a sudden there's a whole lot of other cars like that out on the road? You, you buy a Chevy Malibu, in a, a blue Chevy Malibu, and you think, I've never seen one of these before. I really like this one. And then every time you pull in the store, you're like, wait, there's one. There's another one. There's another one. Hey, everybody else must have bought a blue Chevy Malibu yesterday. <laughs> they didn't just buy that blue Chevy Malibu. They were there all along. But you became focused on, you began to notice that. And psychologists talk about that. Like, if I tell you, don't think about white elephants, it's really hard not to think about white elephants, isn't it? And it's the same way. If you take time at the end of every day and say, where did I notice God today? Maybe the first time you really have to think about it hard. And then maybe after the second day. And it might be a week or two and you think, okay, well, I saw one today. But then over time, you might start to say, wait a minute, there were like five times where I, I noticed God's presence. God wasn't any more present then than he was five weeks earlier. But what's happened? You started to tune into it. You started to notice it. And that prevents us from falling out the window like poor Eutychus, from falling asleep spiritually. So I would invite you to try that practice. Invite God along with you to examine your conscience and your consciousness at the end of the day. But I also want us to notice a piece of good news. A piece of good news in this story is what happened when Eutychus fell out the window? When he fell out the window, did Paul say, man, that guy, he's not a part of our community. He's not awake. He's falling asleep. A good Christian would have stayed awake and listened all night long. What does he do? He runs out and he puts his arms around him and lifts him up. And so this might be an invitation for us to maybe think, 
Is there somebody in our life who's falling out the window, has fallen out the window, and do we just say, oh yeah, too bad for them? Or do we rush out and put our arms around them? Or, more importantly, to think how Paul here is this picture of Jesus. And the picture of Jesus is exactly like that. And it's a reminder that sometimes we fall out the window. Sometimes we fall into a spiritual stupor. Sometimes we fall asleep. But Jesus doesn't just look out the window and say, oh well. But what does Jesus do? He comes down and he wraps his arms around us and he holds us. In a sense, that's what we celebrate at the communion table. We celebrate this reality that we have all fallen short of the glory of God. Paul tells this good news in a letter to the Romans when he says, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were asleep, while we had fallen out the window and hit the ground, Jesus offered up his life for us. And so hear that good news today, church. That God doesn't leave us laying on the ground. But instead, he comes and he picks us up. In the midst of our spiritual death and in the midst of our physical death, Jesus takes us in his arms and says, you are alive, live in me. And so we come and we celebrate at, that, at the table that we can receive that new life through Jesus, that when we come to him, that he gives us new life.